morning again. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1? If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one under the chairs in front of you. You can find Matthew 1 on page 783. This morning we continue our Advent series. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the first couple of chapters for the month of December. And last week, we focused on roots. We looked at the ancestry of Jesus that Matthew 1.1 calls the son of David, the son of Abraham. God had made history-defining promises to those key figures in salvation history. First, to bless the nations through Abraham's descendants. And then much later to make a promise to David that one of his sons would remain on the throne forever. Jesus, who is the ultimate descendant of these great men, fulfills these promises and he fulfills every other promise of God. That was the beginning part of chapter 1. And now Matthew picks up in verse 18 where he left off at the end of the genealogy telling us how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Obviously, Mary gets pregnant, but the problem is that Joseph hasn't touched her. Inconceivable is the title this morning. Listen carefully. These are God's words. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will, give, will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she came, until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, let the familiar account become fresh, more real than ever. Let your same spirit who conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary, enable us to see with spirit eyes, to understand, to be changed, and let your spirit will lead us to worship before the Christ child. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start by looking a little bit more closely at Someone who, in my mind, is the ultimate supporting actor in the truest story ever told, Joseph. Not enough attention is given to him, partly because the gospel writers don't give him that much attention. But the first two words in our outline will help us understand Joseph a little bit better. First, order. In Matthew chapter 13, Joseph is called a carpenter. 
In Mark chapter 6, Jesus, as an adult, is called the same by people in His hometown. And so the picture we get is that the son has learned his father's trade. The word behind carpenter is the Greek word tektone, and it literally simply meant a builder. Some scholars say that uh, because of the terrain, because of the geography of the land, it's entirely possible that Joseph and therefore Jesus, uh, that they were masons more than carpenters. Whatever the material that they would have used as their primary um, uh, resource, we could say that Joseph was a craftsman. I am no craftsman but I love to build and fix and do home improvement as much as possible. My favorite tool is my reciprocating saw. It is a most manly tool. I I love finding real uses for the reciprocating saw. I don't go sawing things in pieces, you know, but when there's a real need and I have to get that tool, I love it. Um, As for most of my tools, I have one firm expectation in my household. If you borrow a tool... You put it back where it belongs. There's a sense of order that a a garage needs for efficiency. Um, I would say that a craftsman or a mechanic or a surgeon or a chef have that in common. Each requires a, a measure of order in order for quality and efficiency to be maintained. And so uh, the tool needs to be cared for so that when you're holding this big plank and you go to cut that plank, that saw blade needs to be sharp or it needs to have been replaced. Otherwise, you get yourself into trouble. The wrenches need to be stored in the right order when you're under the the hood of your car so that you can grab that 12-millimeter wrench and um, not have to dig through that whole toolbox when you need to loosen something. When the surgeon encounters a problem, the right tool or the instrument has to be available immediately, and so the staff lay out all of the supplies ahead of time in just the right order. A chef prepares her mise en place. That's the French that literally means put in place, and that is the prepped station that has all of the ingredients, the herbs and the spices, the chopped vegetables, the sauces, ready to go so that when the orders start flying in, The chef can access everything that she knows exactly where it is. Order is so important. So as a craftsman, order would have been important to Joseph. But out of the blue, order was shattered in Joseph's life. Mary says she's pregnant and he hasn't touched her. Order for this young craftsman. He's engaged to be married. He's hard at work in his early career. He's dreaming about starting a family, maybe even building his own home one day. All of these plans are beginning to come to fruition, and Mary shares this life-changing news. That disruption to order is not, where is my half-inch chisel? I can't find it. It's more like, why isn't the sun rising this morning? Why has the earth stopped spinning all of a sudden? Disorientation. Nothing is the same. Have you ever had your world world upended? Mine got upended three months and nine days ago when our family got a dog. That's when the sun stopped shining. No, no, I'm... 
I'm exaggerating. I'm a team player. Uh, I can live in the dark. Um, but for some of you, you've really had the rug pulled out from under you. Uh, a tragedy in your family, a health scare. The test comes back and you don't know what to make of it. Uh, you were one of the, the handful that got a pink slip at work and you don't know what that means for the future. Any order in your life that you appreciate, any plans that are so, way, uh, so well laid out before you, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm gonna, then this is all going to work out, all thrown out in an instant. How do you find God in that chaos? Can you continue to trust Him in light of this painful disruption? Those are natural questions to ask when order gets thrown out the window. But one powerful yes to those questions comes from this passage, which ends up being at the heart of the real Christmas season, not a Garden State Plaza or Amazon Christmas season. But the true biblical story of how God came in the flesh to save His people from our sins. A sudden intrusion changed everything in Joseph's life. And not only was God easy to find in the chaos, it turns out God was working out His eternal plan of salvation through the chaos, through the disruption of order. So if you really love everything about Christmas, some of you would say that, you're Christmas connoisseurs. If you really love everything about Christmas, you should also delight in this intrusive, life-upending work of God who needed Joseph to play a key supporting role, needed Joseph to live out a much bigger, grander, and perhaps costlier plan than Joseph ever dreamed of. God's cosmic plans to save His people involved giving Joseph this incredible place of privilege in the family who would bring this Messiah to this earth to change everything. Maybe getting into the Christmas spirit should involve a little bit less focus on decorations and songs and gifts and involve more awe and wonder at how nothing is the same in the disruptive coming of God the Son in the flesh. Joseph never set out to be in the spotlight at the center of God's plan to save the world. He was an ordinary, faithful, hardworking family guy. Not a single word spoken by Joseph is recorded in the Bible. After the birth narratives in Matthew's and Luke's Gospels, Joseph's name isn't repeated again. He's referred to once or twice, but he's not named. And what little we know of him from this passage, no surprise, reflects the very heart of God the Father. So the second word that'll help us delve a little bit more deeply into the character of this supporting actor is first order and then second righteousness. Verse 19 describes Joseph by first calling him righteous or just. In the original Greek language, it's just one word. And our NIV translation expands that single word to say that he was faithful to the law. That's the first phrase we come across. That's a very appropriate translation because that's exactly the point of that word in this context. It highlights Joseph's dilemma because 
He was committed in his righteousness and his justice. He was committed to honoring God's holy law. And he figured that Mary had just violated that holy law by committing adultery. That's what he assumed. By the way, being pledged to be married in that culture meant much more than what we call engagement today. It was socially and uh, culturally and legally binding. And the only uh, key step remaining uh, that Joseph and Mary hadn't taken, the text actually says, was to consummate that marriage. That was the only thing missing here. The second thing we learn about Joseph in verse 19 is that he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. And so he immediately demonstrates mercy and compassion, which is amazing. We don't hear what we would expect from a guy who just found out his lady cheated on him. Again, he he has every reason to believe that that's what happened, right? She's pregnant, only one explanation. For a lot of men, this would be the ultimate blow to the male ego, pride and masculinity stabbed in the gut But Joseph doesn't plot revenge by public shaming. He doesn't scheme to make her pay for this. He decides to divorce her quietly, the text tells her. And yes, he'll take a hit, but he'll move on. All of this highlights the difference between Joseph as a righteous man, faithful to God's Word, and yet demonstrating mercy and compassion versus the more typical pattern of self-righteousness. Those are mutually exclusive. A righteous man reflects the righteousness of God, and he submits to God's rightness, to God's prerogative to determine what happens. A righteous man does not need to defend his own reputation because the king promises that he will be vindicated, that his name will be preserved. But on the other hand, a self-righteous man's faithfulness is to himself. He sees himself as the one in charge. He's the de facto king. His is the prerogative. His are the plans that are to be fulfilled. And when they're not, he's indignant. He's offended, and he must take matters into his own hands. Isn't the second picture what we all too often demonstrate in our lives? Joseph, the righteous man, the rest of us, most typically, self-righteous. Joseph submitting so faithfully, so humbly, so amazingly to the plan of God. He wants to maintain faithfulness to God's Word. He's he's righteous and just, and yet He demonstrates mercy and compassion. And are we all about God's honor, holy law? And even if we are, do we balance that with mercy and compassion? No surprise here. Joseph's heart reflects the heart of God the Father in maintaining this balance. Righteous and just dealing firmly with sin. That's who God is. That's who we're called to be. But merciful and compassion, passionate, offering the undeserving a path for forgiveness. 
truth and love, we might call it, held in balance. Both are critical because truth without love is cold. It's abstract. It's powerless to change people's hearts. It often just remains right up here in the mind. But the opposite, love without truth is no better. Love without truth is merely sentimental. It has no foundation. It ebbs and flows like the tide. And so whatever heart impact it may make, it doesn't last. You can't trust it. There's no foundation from which you can derive security in love without truth. You need both together. That's what Joseph does in reflecting the heart of God and uniquely blending truth and love. By the way, we need to remember that it's one thing for Joseph to know how Mary really got pregnant. An angel appears to him and tells him, and he believes it. It's one thing for him to know that. It's quite another to realize that no one in their community would ever believe Joseph if he dared to tell them the true story. People would assume that he either lost his mind or that he's so gullible that he would fall for that kind of fantastical story. God's calling on Joseph's life meant social shame, and it meant religious judgment by his and Mary's peers, people looking down on them because they couldn't just sin and accept the consequences of their sin. They had to come up with this crazy story to rationalize her sin of adultery. That's That picture is another one of the very real themes at the heart of Christmas, believing the truths about this strange intrusion intrusion into our world and therefore calling Jesus Lord and Savior. That will make people think you're either foolish or intolerant for insisting that that's the only way that God can save people. And sometimes, especially in other parts of the world, people will make you pay for believing those truths of intrusion, God intrusion into the world. Um, They will make you pay by persecution, literal consequences for that kind of faith. But none of this is about convenience or popularity. It's about the truest story ever told. It's about the most amazing plot line ever imagined that God became man to save His people from their sins. A third word that... um, and I'll wrap us up here, is strangeness. Strangeness. Let's not miss the heart of the passage, right? The angel's message to Joseph wasn't just, don't worry, it'll all work out. It's the right thing to do. The real shocker was why. Because the Mary, the baby conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, because he has divine origin and human origin, he is uniquely the Messiah. The creator of this universe, Joseph, is this child's heavenly father, and you will be his earthly father, and he will save his people from their sins. Strange stuff. For centuries, the people of Israel had looked to the east expecting her Messiah to arrive with fanfare in power and majesty, so obvious on the world stage that it would change everything and everybody would know it. Was 
the true Messiah now really coming under the cover of night instead? Was he really coming as a helpless baby instead of a mighty warrior born in scandal to a nobody teenage girl who'd give birth as a virgin? For centuries, Israel hoped for an end to her suffering and oppression at the hands of foreign and pagan rulers. Was this Messiah really to live a life of oppression and suffering himself? Strange. Last week, we looked at the um, genealogy, the first part of Matthew 1, but what we saw, we didn't pay attention to, is that the line of David, the line of kings, leads to Joseph, who is not biologically related to the Messiah, which means that adoption is how Jesus is affirmed to be a true descendant of David. Strange. No one would make this stuff up if they were concerned about proving Jesus' legitimate claim to be the Messiah, to have all these qualifications that, yep, are checked off, and yeah, He, he qualifies. He, he's certainly a son of David. It would be shocking, this adoption link, this sort of dotted line in ancestry, right? Um, this sort of parenthetical comment in, in the genealogy. Yeah, well, he was adopted. It would be shocking except for the fact that we find at the heart of the gospel, the Father adopting sinners into His very family, something we looked at in Ephesians 1 this fall, something we'll go back to in the spring. The true miracle of Christmas is that this strange story introduces the climactic chapter in all of history. Verse 22 tells us that this birth is a fulfillment of an 800-year-old prophecy about a virgin giving birth to one whose name will be Emmanuel, with us God. All this strangeness, and we haven't even talked about signs in the stars and animals at the birth and shepherds in the field and wise men showing up with gifts. All this strangeness, all this supernatural, what human minds would never conceive of, all of it is the real stuff of Christmas. All of it is underneath God's eternal plan to rescue His people. Author John Shea writes this, this is a truly appropriate conception story for a man who, when he grows up, will scandalize everyone. His understanding of God, salvation, mission, nation, and self will will sound strange and disloyal to many people and be met with by ripped robes and murderous plots. What is sown in scandal is harvested in scandal. This opening genealogy and conception episode tries to drive home the proper attitude toward the strange and the scandalous. Do not be afraid to take it into your home. Are you in the Christmas spirit yet? Grace Redeemer Church, are you? It doesn't really involve lights and cookies. It doesn't even really involve Wham or Bing Crosby. My apologies if you're singing to yourself this afternoon. 
last Christmas, it won't even come in an avalanche of presents or a feast on a table. It will only come, the Christmas spirit. The full reality will only hit you when you believe for the first time or as if for the first time, freshly, again, when you believe in this strange and surprising story that lies at the center of all of history, when you don't insist on all the answers, but instead humbly and simply bow before the King, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, Savior of sinners like you and like me. Let's pray. Lord, fill us with your Spirit, that same Spirit we just read about, that Messiah-conceiving Spirit. Fill us with Him that we might welcome strangeness into our homes, that we might live in this strangeness, that we might proclaim it with confidence, perhaps with a, a shake of the head and a chuckle because it's, it's so unbelievable, it's inconceivable, but with an assurance from that spirit that these things are most true, that these plot lines shape all other stories, all in the other individual realities, and that you, Heavenly Father, will send your Son as you did in His first coming, in His first advent, you will send Him to come again to complete what you have begun. We give you praise. We return glory to you. In the name of the true royal Son of David, Jesus Himself. Amen.